So hey, it's Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Oregon and Utah Poison Centers for our last uh, journal club of our academic year. Today we're talking about insect repellent since it's in the news, um, or at least insects, certain insects are in the news. Um, I get this um, ProMed bulletins of diseases outbreaks all over the world and there is a, yet another virus making its way through South America, the oral poche virus showed up in Peru, um, which 36 confirmed cases this month. And they're talking about the highest peak season. It's um, transmitted by the blood-sucking mosquito, the Colucides paranesis, and it causes a meningitis similar to dengue fever. And we'll talk about all the other things that are out there, but this mosquito is known to be in Brazil which has been on the news because of the Olympics and all the other Zika things associated with it. And there's an incubation period of four to eight days, followed by persistent vomiting for a week, and then meningoencephalitis following that. And full recovery can take a while. So yet another virus out there. We'll talk about a few of them, but we're not going to focus so much on the viruses. I'll do a little background on Zika because I think it's important to know what the transmission um, uh, modalities are, because we'll talk about those. So Zika first occurred in 1952, deep within the Zika forest of Uganda, where it got its name from. There was actually practically no cases for almost 50 years. Then the first outbreak that made any note anywhere was in uh, 2007 on the island of Yap, which for those of you who don't know where that is, it's in the Pacific. Um, there were 185 cases, and that's not a very populated place, and then it sort of disappeared for a while, started popping up sporadically here and there in the Pacific and South America, a couple of cases in the Caribbean, and it's spread primarily by two mosquitoes we'll be talking a lot about today, the Aedes aegypti and the Aedes albopictus. So both of those are appear in many of the articles we're going to talk about. So with everyone, or with some people thinking about what to do this summer when they're out, whether or not they're going to be bitten by a variety of insects, and more specifically the people who are athletes and uh, people going down to visit in uh, Brazil want to know how can they prevent themselves from getting Zika, which has sort of produced a horrible set of consequences with both uh, um, birth defects and Guillain-Barre and meningitis. But there are other mosquito-borne diseases, dengue and malaria. We'll talk a little bit about each of those in turn as we go through these articles. So the first article, and we're going to compare how different repellents work for the most part. Uh, Matt Davey, tell us about some of those repellents. Yeah, so I uh, reviewed a New England Journal article by Frandon called Comparative Efficacy of Insect Repellents Against Mosquito Bites. Uh, this was done in 2002, so I'm jump into a, a brief introduction, kind of uh, talking about mosquitoes uh, and how they create basically an enormous uh, amount of morbidity, mortality through the transmission of uh, various infectious diseases such as malaria, um, all the viruses that um, uh, Zane was alluding to. Um, and basically, insect repellent is one of our mainstays against uh, prevention of these diseases. And so it's important to know which insect repellents actually work, which ones don't, and, and for how long uh, these are uh, efficacious. So this study attempted to look at the efficacy of 
various commercial uh, commercial products available at the time, 2002. Um, so in order to do this, they went out and bought 16 different products. Um, they bought seven different botanicals, you know, oils of, of different botanicals, uh, four different deep products, uh, one <coughs> new one that was kind of new on the at least the U.S. market, um, ethyl butyl, acetyl, aminopropanate, uh, and then three various uh, different impregnated wristbands, and then one kind of popular uh, moisturizer uh, that had thought to have repellent properties uh, at the time. So what they did with all these is basically they tested 15 different uh, volunteers in these arm cages um, that each cage had 10 disease-free very hungry uh, 80s Egypti uh, in them. And basically the, the main outco outcome that they had was time to the first bite. So each repellent um, was tested three times on each volunteer and figure one kind of shows their uh, flow chart. Uh, with basically the idea you apply the repellent, you put your arm uh, in the cage uh, for, a, for a minute at a time. Uh, if, you're, if you're not bitten, um, they kind of increase the kind of time interval, uh, the longer that they went without a bite. Uh, my only question with their methods was exactly how they identified uh, a bite and not just a mosquito landing on it. They don't uh, necessarily explain that very well. Um, so in terms of uh, the results, the um, results are laid out in table one. Kind of a nice, um, um, you know, nice table well-organized of uh, the results. So you can see that the deep group kind of far outlasted all the other groups. And there was a nice trend. The higher the concentration of deets, the longer uh, longer the effect, the longer you went without a first bite. And kind of interestingly, the one controlled release deep product basically added no additional benefits. It, uh, it didn't last any longer. And, if, and actually kind of comparing it to a similarly concentrated product it, was actually, it actually did a little bit worse. Um, looking at the non-deep products, none of these lasted more than an hour and a half. And then kind of the popular citronella products, none of those lasted more than 20 minutes. And then uh, kind of last of all, the impregnated wristbands, those made it a stellar 12 seconds. So not, not very useful. Um, and then, so that was kind of their initial, uh, original study, and then a new one uh, came out on the market, um, the oil of eucalyptus, and they actually tested that, kind of using the same um, you know, methods that they did with the, all the other ones, and actually had pretty good results. It had a mean um, complete protection time of, of 120 minutes, and that was comparable to uh, the mid-range concentration of DEET. Um, so then they kind of jump into their discussion and you know, talk about the association. The higher the deep concentration, the, the longer the, the bite-free period. Uh, but they didn't test, you know, above 23.8% was their highest uh, deep. So nothing, nothing high concentration. And in, in uh, previous studies showed once you get above about 50%, you really don't increase the, the duration. So in the plateaus... And most of the commercial products out there today are, are less than 40%. Um, 
really, you know, if you wanted to use a non-DEET uh, product, really the only potentials out there were the soybean oil and then the, the new oil of eucalyptus. The kind of the popular moisturizer at the time, um, the new synthetic IR3535, and then all the oils, citronella, cedar, peppermint, lemongrass, germanium, they're all kind of you know, pretty much useless, at least based on this study, you know, less than 20 minutes of protection. Um, to kind of review some of the other things that have been tested in the past, oral garlic, oral thiamine, sound-emitting devices, the, the impregnated bracelets, all those are basically uh, useless. I'm going to kind of make a, a good point of looking at the range of times. Um, there are, you know, quite, you know, a big range for each repellent. And this, they kind of correlate that, you know, depending on the subject's age, their uh, sex, uh, the temperature, humidity, you know, all the you know, wind speed, although this was an indoor controlled uh, study. So it's probably best to, uh, you know, probably look at the lower limits if you actually, you know, if you want to be conservative. But kind of overall, they're you know, recommending, uh, deep, you know, kind of saying just because it's a synthetic chemical and you know, quotation marks, you shouldn't be you know, necessarily, you know, afraid to use this. It's been used eight mit eight eight billion human applications. There's been fifty documented cases of, uh, kind of serious toxic effects, and three fourths of those you know, resolving without any sequelae. And usually those are people that are, you know, not, not listening to the, the directions, putting all over their uh, body, kind of uh, using it not, not as indicated. Um, so overall, it's a, a very safe uh, medication. And, and clearly, based on this study, it's, you know, the, the best thing that, that we have out there. So that was a, a cool, simple study that, you know, kind of delineated the, um, the effects of a lot of these uh, repellents. Yeah, this, this study was done sort of in the early days of West Nile. West Nile hadn't become as pervasive yet, and people wanted to use natural things, because after all, they were just trying to put off being bitten by mosquitoes. The mosquitoes weren't carrying malaria inside the United States. They were just annoying. You know, when West Nile came along, suddenly people were getting sick, and you know, the question is how do we really avoid this? And People wanted to use things like Skin So Soft, which is one of the ones tested that IR3535. It didn't really last very long, at least the time of the first bite is like 20 minutes, so not very effective. But there is one downside to DEET that they do mention, in that it is a plasticizer, and it melts things. So people came, their clothes melted, their, their eyeglass and sunglass earpieces melted when it touched their face, their nose bridge or their glasses melted. Their watch crystals melted, um, and so they were annoyed. You keep putting the stuff on, you end up with like going through all your, you know, accessories get melting, and it's not just because it's hot; it's because it becomes plasticized and it stains synthetic fabrics. So you're going through shirts and glasses and watches, and it, it's that becomes more of an annoyance. So there's been this constant search for: is there anything better out there than than DEET? We'll find out. We'll take a look at another article, looking specifically, again, more so in a lab-tested device. Um, we'll get to the field testing in a second, but Peter, why don't you tell us about um, your article? Yeah. So my article comes from the Journal of Insect Science in 2015, 
its uh, efficacy of some commercially available insect repellents versus the Aedes aegypti and the Aedes albopictus insect uh, mosquito, which we know to be vectors for Zika. Um, they just start with a nice introduction, talking about controlling mosquito populations is a, a very effective tool to fight off pathogens. Um, if you can kill all the mosquitoes, then there's nothing for them to spread around, no one else can get sick. You can also do source reduction, um, physical exclusion, the use of nets and screens, and pesticide application, other biological control mechanisms, although it's been shown that even nets and screens can sometimes be pretty difficult just to get set up and to implement for people. And then amongst uh, repellents and insecticides, they were noticed that there's some widespread insecticide resistance in the disease-carrying mosquito populations, uh, which makes for a very significant problem for them. And so what their aim was, was to compare some DEET and non-DEET uh, containing repellents, as well as some things that I don't know that you would even classify as repellents. Uh, what they did is they used this World Health Organization's guidelines for efficacy for testing spatial treatment, uh, excuse me, guidelines for efficacy testing of spatial repellents. They set up this very interesting Y chamber. Um, at the end, you have a fan that is blowing air at a constant rate, and then there are two other two ports at the other end. They what they did is they selected one research scientist who I have to read the quote here was selected as the attractant for the Y tube based on preliminary attraction studies that found her to be a superior attractant. Oh. <laughs> and this is 2015. Yeah. I gotta understand that. <laughs> So they wouldn't let her. They wouldn't let her wash her hands, wear perfume, or shower that morning. They covered one hand in the repellent, and they covered another hand with a glove um, at the single end of the Y chamber with the, where the fan was. They placed twenty mosquitoes, let them acclimate to the air. They put her hands at the other end. Presumably, one was treated, one was not. Um, one, I, it's not clear to me, but I'm assuming is still gloved. Mm -hmm. Um, into the chamber and open that up again let the mosquitoes acclimate and then after they open the holding chamber they allow them about two minutes to move up and down the tube and decide whether they're going right to left which versus treated versus the untreated hand um, after two minutes they closed all of them and basically they just counted they counted how many mosquitoes never left the holding chamber how many wound up near the treated hand how many wound up near the untreated hand and then the ones that didn't wind up in any of those groups were considered to be wandering. And then they just did a simple test to see um, whether there was a change in the overall baseline attraction rate. So what they found was for the Aegypti that female mosquitoes had a baseline attraction rate for this particular um, research assistant, about 61%, plus or minus. And they did a and. They measured out at every 30 minutes, uh, well, 30 to 120 to 240 minutes. They gave us about a four-hour time for duration. It's still unclear to me as to whether they had her put on the repellent, and then only day one was the initial. Then on another day, they did 30 minutes later well, for the first time that they stuck her, stuck them in the Y-tube, or whether she had to literally sit there for four hours with her hands in, in the Y-tube. But... Of note, DEET works very, very well. And they used repel 100 insect repellent, which was their, or 
big deep control as well as the off deep woods. And you went from initial attraction of about 61% down to 10 and 6% respectively. Um, showed, showed a little bit of decreased efficacy over time out to that four hour time limit. You know, repel 100, 100 insect repellent so it was 14% attraction versus the off deep woods of 29%. They also went and compared some of the other non deep eco smart cutter eucalyptus. Um, so when you take a look at like the cutter natural insect repellent, that didn't really seem to be helpful at all. And then Avon Skin So Soft Bath Oil has been kind of pushed as maybe one of these things that you can go ahead and use. And like, at least for the 80s Egypti, you had about a 50% reduction at initial time. And then when you get out to the four hour mark, again, not so helpful. Uh, the thing that I found most interesting is uh, the Victoria's Secret Bombshell Perfume. Uh, <laughs> has some fairly good efficacy for the first two, two hours <laughs> for 80s Egypti. Uh, then they went on to test against the other species that we talked about, and we have similar response as well. Um, DEET is by far more effective. The natural cutter does not seem to be as effective at all. The skin patch is not effective in any way, shape, or form. And Victoria's Secret Bombshell, again, is still very effective in keeping mosquitoes, repelling mosquitoes. I'm going to make a caveat at the end of their discussion to talk about that bombshell concentration was higher than they think that would be used in the standard fragrance. I'm not really sure what that means, whether they just sprayed a lot or whether they like actually went so far as to, I don't know, concentrate the solution. But the take-home is... DEET is still the best, and DEET still works. And if you can't get DEET, you can do a Victoria's Secret bombshell. And they weren't able to tell what the actual ingredient in that is yeah. and why they picked it. I don't know. I don't know if it's actually marketed as a insect repellent or not, but apparently it uh, keeps them away uh, for part of the time. So that's so, so these two studies were done like with an arm in a box or fingers at the end of a little plastic glass tube with a fan blowing. What really counts is, you know, sitting in the jungle. Um, and there are probably ways to test things that way. So Matt, tell us how the uh, U.S. Army yeah, solves this, this problem. This is fascinating. So my reading between the lines here, this is a study, by the way, that came out. It was published in 2014 in the Journal of Medical Entomology. Um, by a group, and the title is Field Evaluations of Topical Ar and Arthropod Repellents in North, Central, and South America. So it's obviously a military-funded study. DOD um, funding and actually uh, logistics as far as getting it completed. But my reading between the lines is that as of 20, well, 2005, 2008, there were studies that showed, quote, negative perceptions of DEET among service members. Um, so DOD personnel and just military uh, uh, folks in general. So um, Ultrathon, which is a 34% DEET solution made in St. Paul, Minnesota, is the standard military choice. And obviously the military has a vested interest in um, repellents, uh, not only because of their sort of military actions, but also their humanitarian actions sort of rapid response to different areas of the world, sometimes under um, 
different environmental stressors that may increase the outbreaks of epidemics or at least arthropod bites. Um, and often in timeframes where maybe a vaccine is available, but you can't deploy it or chemoprophylaxis doesn't really work. So obviously the interest is there and that's kind of what motivated the study. So here's what they did. They took the Ultrathon, which is the 34% DEET, and they compared it to four other formulations, two lotions and two sprays. The lotions were 20% picaridin and 10% IR3535, and the sprays were 20% picaridin and 20% IR3535. And they used three different field studies, uh, South Carolina, which is sort of a marine training ground, Belize, uh, which um, they didn't really go into how their, what their connections were there. And then Peru, which I found fascinating because there's a uh, Navy medical research unit, NAMRU, which is stationed there in this totally random part of the Peruvian Amazonian basin. So they gathered volunteers. In Belize, it was 30. In uh, South Carolina, it was 12. And in Peru, it was 30. And they performed this um, in September and August of 2007 and 2009, depending on the study site. So I guess, I don't know if that's a red flag or not. Maybe it just took a really long time for this to be published or to analyze the data. But there's certainly a gap between when it was performed and when it was published. So anyway, imagine that you are a small farmer in the Peruvian Amazonian River Basin and you live in a town of 2,500 people, which is probably smaller than what is in a half mile radius of us right now. And you have gotten to know some Navy research folks over the years because they have a base station there and then they ask you, do you want to participate in this study? And it doesn't say what they, if they paid them at all or how they were motivated, but they were eventually able to gather, like I said, 30 people and in all of these sites, so 30, 12, and 30, they would stick you, well, first of all, they would cover everything except a small area between your ankle and your knee, both legs, and everything else was covered, and they would just sort of put you um, in a field, and they described the fields very comprehensively, sort of a semi-wooded, semi-marshy area um, in this low-lying river basin, and anyway, they left one leg totally exposed, and in the other leg, they have a trained research volunteer like slather you with lotion or spray you. So you just stand there as you get slathered in lotion. Um, and then between the hours of, I believe, 6 p.m. and 10 p.m., they sort of stand there and watch as mosquitoes land on your skin, and then they immediately mouth aspirate the mosquito off and put it into a container and then it's killed and then shipped off somewhere for the military to figure out what mosquito it is. They don't describe those methods at all, so we don't know. We just have to take them at their word. And this is mosquitoes landing on skin, not necessarily bites. But I find it kind of an odd picture that someone's sitting there with a straw sucking a mosquito off of you after having rubbed you with lotion. <laughs> so anyway, they did this for either 50 minutes or 30 minutes, and they would switch the volunteers, uh, you know, over the, it was like two or three consecutive nights, so each night you'd have a different leg sort of slathered and left uh, exposed so that there wasn't any um, confounding variable about, 
you know, you as a person or you as a left-legged person. Um, and anyway, they collected everything and, and they identified the mosquitoes and then they came up with this percent protection, which is a figure that they calculated as the landing rate for a bare skin control minus the landing rate for the treated skin divided by, again, the landing rate for the control times 100. So it gives you a percentage of what the sort of protection is of each of these agents. And that's kind of the distillation of the paper in general. Each site had, um, well, Belize had 4,200 mosquitoes identified. Paris Island in South Carolina had 7,400 insects collected. Again, that sort of um, includes biting midges, which they eventually excluded in their analysis, but lots of mosquitoes too. And then in Peru, there's about 800 mosquitoes collected. And they do a nice job of sort of describing what the breakdown of the actual mosquito species are in each place. Of note, Aedes aegypti was a of paucity. I mean, there is one confirmed Aedes aegypti of the um, however many thousand, like over 10,000 mosquitoes collected. So I don't know how generalizable it is, but in any case, they have tables for each of the sites describing their percent protection over time. And the way that they set it up is that they would slather people during the course of the day leading up to the evening bite time. And so they'd be able to sort of back calculate what the hours post-application was. So that's how they come up with 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, and 12 hours post-application. And then they can describe what the protection percentage is. I think the, the general conclusion is that, by and large, Ultrathon, which is 34% DEET, performs at least as well, if not better, at all time points, and especially at the 12-hour mark, than all of the other formulations. Regardless of the mosquito that's biting you or the part of the Americas that you're standing in. Um, and above and beyond that, it does a pretty decent job, sort of on the order of 90 plus percent at 12 hours. Um, some of the formulations, I guess the nadir probably is in Belize where um, the 20% uh, picaridin spray dropped to about you know, less than half protection at 12 hours. But really, if you're looking for a two, four, even a six hour protection, they all kind of did about the same. Again, these are concentrations of IR3535 and picaridin that are higher than what we've talked about in the lab studies that we reviewed so far. Um, but if you are reaching for one mosquito spray to last you 12 hours and to cover pretty much everything anywhere in the Americas, you certainly would be justified in going with the 34% DEET. And it sounds like it, they, they were trying to prove for themselves that, listen, what we've been using works and it works better. And it was certainly done in pre-Zika, but certainly in an era of time when they were going into highly mosquito-infested areas, you know, 7,000-plus mosquitoes for landings and being sucked off you by your um, research partner is, is an impressive amount of mosquitoes. Uh, and, and this is, you know, field testing rather than sticking your arm in a chamber. So, again, pretty strong for DEET, the Ultrathon, which is the high concentration, which is available over the Internet from some 
stores, but um, not exactly something you go down to the corner pharmacy and pick up. So, change gears just a little bit. Um, you know, one of the things we are often want to protect ourselves against is not just mosquitoes, but ticks, um, which can, in the summertime, a variety of tick-borne rickettsial diseases, anaplasmosis, or leukiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, everyone's favorite test question, it seems to be, you know, on there. So how do these three preparations we've talked about stand up against the Lone Star tick? So, uh, Laura, you're doing this one? Uh, 
Uh, there was no significant uh, diminution in efficacy for any of the formulations over time. So at 12 hours, they were all uh, pretty much performing about the same sort of compelling. A couple of uh, differences they did um, find was that the 10% uh, uh, 30, IR35, 35 lotion um, did, uh, you did start to see more ticks cross that line at 12 hours. So it was in their uh, uh, discussion, they're saying that the 10% is uh, probably not as effective as the 20%. But there were really no differences between any of the lotions or sprays for the 20% formulations of Hikaridin or DEET. Uh, some other interesting things, uh, they did see uh, that female volunteers did have um, more uh, ticks crossing the uh, line, uh, which is consistent with uh, some previous studies. Um, so they think it's, they're not really sure why females just attract ticks more, uh, but it is uh, consistent with previous results. So that's, uh, yes, that's really uh, that article. Um, I think really any of the formulations they tested would be uh, perfectly safe and effective for, yeah. for so, the Golden Star ticks. Yeah, so if you're not traveling out of the United States, but you want to prevent tick bites, and although they don't address mosquito bites, some of these other herbal preparations, the IR3535, seem to work okay, but at high concentrations, 20%. The Picardin seems to work okay. I mean, the study itself is... I'm a little creepy how they did it. They basically stuck your foot in a bucket and saw how many ticks crawled up your leg uh, or fell off your leg. Um, so I understand that's probably not the most interesting study to participate in, but uh, all of these uh, formulations seem, seem to work. And we seem to have more and more tick-borne diseases. There's that one in Kansas, the bourbon disease, and a variety of other ones keeps getting... Uh, discovered every year. So, you know, as far as not having to travel out of the country to Brazil, but other places, you know, these other preparations may be just fine if you're only going out for four or five hours in the evening to prevent bites. So the last of our um, studies that deal with prevention really is sort of the ultimate test here. It's like, take these repellents to the jungles of Cambodia and let's see how they perform. Uh, Nina, tell us how that worked. Um, I actually, I read the toxicology from Clintock's article. Sorry, I don't know much about Cambodia. All right, I'll, I'll go through this one. So this was an interesting study. The title is Field Evaluations of Picardin Repellents Reveals Differences in Repellent Sensitivity Between Southeast Asian Vectors of Malaria and Arboviruses. So these are looking for some of the bad things out there, like malaria and all of the other arboviruses. Um, they mentioned that we've been talking about two mosquitoes, but there are 3,500 different mosquito species around the world, but only a few of them transmit diseases like malaria, bilariasis, dengue, chikungunya, Japanese encephalitis, yellow fever, and all the vector control programs rely on both insecticides to kill them, decreasing their breeding grounds by cleaning up wet areas, which is sometimes hard to do, net sleeping at night, indoor residual spraying, and then spraying with repellents. Um, and they talk about some of the species, which include Aedes aegypti and Aegis albopticus, which we mentioned our Zika vectors are of concern. Um, so what they did is they went to two malaria epidemic endemic provinces in Cambodia, uh, where they have a variety of these uh, mosquitoes, 
Um, they did some surveys to show which mosquitoes are active and which times a day. And they used five treatments, including two negative controls, which was just alcohol applied to the skin, one technical grade DEET treatment as positive control, two formulations of picaridin, 10% and 20%, one a lotion, one a spray. And uh, they basically had five days and five lower limbs of treatment with one of these things. And they, before application, they washed the person down, cleaned them off, applied some alcohol and water, and uh, they had them wear long sleeve shirts and socks, and they rolled their legs up, their, above, their trousers above the knee, basically is what they describe it. And then they collected human landings um, starting 30 minutes after the treatment was begun, um, all done between 5 o'clock and 11 o'clock at night, which is the peak uh, mosquito biting time. So this was a continuous exposure in the field in Cambodia to these um, mosquitoes, which include, like we said, Aedes aegypti, Aedes albota picatus, amongst others. Those two are the Zika viruses. Um, and then they caught the mosquitoes, and they um, they actually say how they identified them. They cut their heads and thoraxes off and used an ELISA assay. They actually looked to make sure that none of these actually had malaria as well as they caught them, so they didn't want to spread malaria anywhere. So there were 460 collecting evenings done, of which they collected over 5,000 mosquitoes on negative control persons. They break it down by whether they were Aedes or Anopheles or Culex mosquitoes, but there was enough of each. Um, for mosquitoes that were collected, uh, the biting peaked generally between 6 and 7 at night. Um, median complete protection time was calculated to be over five hour, hours uh, for most of the mosquitoes and most of the vectors, and there was no significant difference between uh, the different vectors and the different mosquitoes. So repellent performance was measured during that period of time. It was greater than 90% for all the ones they measured, which included the 20% Picardin was 98%, the 20% DEET was 98%, um, and, but they felt that despite those numbers being similar, more mosquitoes were repelled by DEET and Picardin than the lower concentrations of 10% Picardin. Um, that was pretty, but even with the lower concentrations, it was still 96%. But I think when you're looking to prevent malaria, you know, 99, 98% is kind of where you're shooting for, 96% may not be enough. Um, part of their study, they say, this is, you know, pretty much the most extensive study in Southeast Asia performance of Picaridin specifically. DEET's been looked at a lot of times. The repellents tested in the stu study all performed well, all did better than 90%, um, and, you know, and it lasted for several hours. So, although the 10% lotion may be okay for children, um, really, if you're going into the country and you're in a malaria prone zone, you have to use the 20% lotions that were out there. So, again, su suggesting that Picardin and DEET both work. Um, you know, specifically looking at malaria uh, areas of the world. So again, one more plus study for DEET, trying to say this is really the best thing to use and the higher the concentration and the higher zones, the better. But before we say 
all is good, let's take a brief look at the downside of both of these. So, um, Ryan, tell us about why we worry about DEET encephalopathy. So this paper is from 2001 um, in Human Experimental Toxicology titled Toxic Encephalopathy Associated with Use of DEET Encyclopathy, um, a Case Analysis of Toxicity in Children. It was kind of a two-part deal. So they first report their own case of an 18-month-old who they took care of in their PICU and then went on to review um, all of the case reports of encephalopathy that was attributed to DEET that they could find um, in the literature. Um, so they start with introduction largely discussing um, some of the symptoms that can be seen, um, and they kind of delineate between topical exposure um, and ingestion, um, and we'll go into that further in the paper as well, but symptoms they can see, so convulsions, hypotension, respiratory distress, coma, death, um, seizures, um, as far as topical, um, at higher concentrations, you can see skin necrosis, anaphylactic reactions, cardiovascular toxicity, they've even reported psychosis. Um, kind of go on to discuss um, the systemic absorption um, of DEET through the skin from the, from the, from the dermal application um, and comment that basically, while some of this has been looked at in adults, there's really not much information on cases in children, which is their interest, um, and it sounds like that interest was sparked um, by this 18-month-old that they took care of. Um, so they first give their report um, of the course of this 18-month-old, um, who, so they kind of go through his, his, his story. So this is a study that was out of Greece, um, so they, they were living on an island, apparently. They don't specify where exactly, um, but the, 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 the child and his parents had just come um, over the, about three days ago, um, when he was kind of drowsy, irritable, vomiting, um, and then fairly rapidly progressed to um, what they describe as like a status epilepticus type picture. Um, you know, recurrent seizures without a return to baseline. Um, he got diazepam um, and phenytoin. Um, was subsequently noted to be tachycardic, low O2 sats, um, kind of overall consistent with being postictal, which they later kind of confirmed with an EEG. Um, after an extensive history, um, as far as trying to sort out a cause of this, what they kind of settled on was that he had recently been using 17.6% uh, um, concentration DEET um, topical since they had been camping in the countryside. Um, so he had not really had this applied long term, so this was a fairly acute reaction that he had. Um, they go on to describe the rest of his course. Um, basically, he was in the hospital for about a week, um, and at their most recent follow-up, nine months after this happened, he'd been doing fine. Um, so they then went on to do a literature search um, to find other cases. Um, they found a total of 17 children, um, less than 16, that they pretty well summarized in table one. Um, they didn't put dates in the table. If you go through their um, citations, it's a pretty broad range here. So this paper was from 2001. The oldest one that they noted was from 1961. Um, all the way through 1992 um, was the most recent one. So a pretty broad range of dates to find just a handful of cases. Um, they broke things down as best as they could um, as far as oral versus cutaneous threats of administration um, and tried to divide up some of their comparisons um, in that fashion. Um, so when they go through what happened with these kids, 
they all had serious side effects, and they had a total of three deaths. Um, all of the deaths um, were in the cutaneous exposure category, um, but otherwise their kind of baseline baseline um, characteristics were similar. Um, going through further, they go through kind of the common symptoms um, that were discussed before, so the convulsions, coma, behavioral changes, um, and then go through some of the, the less frequent things. Um, the biggest thing they note at the end here, seizures more frequent with cutaneous exposure, um, and coma significantly uh, more associated with uh, ingestion. Um, they move on to their discussion. Um, they talk about kind of the importance of, of preventing some of these insect exposures, some of the various other um, options that have been studied, and they kind of acknowledge that DEET had been shown to be kind of superior to the rest of them. Um, but then go into a discussion of their concerns um, being some of these some of these side effects. Um, obviously concerning with ingestion, um, because that was leading to kind of coma and convulsions and fairly rapid and severe symptoms, but then some comments on the cutaneous exposure um, with this kind of odd association with seizures that they didn't see as much um, when it was ingested. Um, they have a discussion of some potential alternatives, um, so be it diluting the DEET, um, there's some discussion um, that had been suggested in the past that the ethanol solution um, to kind of suspend the DEET for application can actually lead to more dermal uptake than if it's in lipospheres. Um, but again, all, all things with kind of limited data um, and certainly limited commercial products. Um, they kind of readdress some things about the cases that they did use. Um, as far as whether or not they could actually attribute things to the DEET, um, about half of the cases they never offered an alternative diagnosis, and the ones they did it was either idiopathic seizures um, or kind of non-specific cellulitis without anything confirmatory. Um, so reasonable, reasonable suspicions this would have been related to to the DEET. Um, we kind of move to their conclusion then um, that. Certainly, we need to be preventing an insect bites. Um, they think there's maybe some alternatives um, to help prevent uptake of the DEET. Um, at the very end, um, they basically just comment on the same thing. So because of the potential toxicity, um, they think we should have less toxic or new formulations. Um, but as we kind of just discussed with the prior papers, DEET pretty clearly superior to most things. Yeah, because of, you know the skin absorption really turned out to be worse than uh, ingestions, mostly because it's, it's hard to eat a lot of you know lotions. You know, it just right. doesn't go down well. I guess you can have a spray that's liquid and drink a lot of it. But um, this was sort of one of the reasons why people had like this DEET phobia, and uh, parents were slathering up their kids. And when I think they were just trying to prevent mosquito bites, it was one thing. When try to prevent Zika, it's something else. But at one point, the American Academy of Pediatrics did limit the amount you should put on a child to a 10% solution, which is below what all these other ones we've talked about as far as what might work if you're going into a place like Brazil for the Olympics where there's high prevalence of Zika, that may not hold and you may need to use a higher concentration, but there is this downside of this toxic encephalopathy, mostly reversible, but can cause status epilepticus and in a couple of cases, death. So the question is, is there an alternative such as picaridin? What's the toxicity associated with picaridin? So we have hot off the presses. Uh, Nina, tell us about this article that's still EPUB'd at this point. 
Hi guys, so I did review this article. Um, and so it was in Slim Talks um, recently, um, as of May. And so what they do is um, they kind of data mine a little bit. This comes from uh, the Virginia people out there. Um, and so they talk about picaridin and how it usually comes as a 15 to 20% spray or lotion. Um, and, and in several studies, it mentions here that it has been shown to be as efficacious as heat, um, but there's very little data on the safety. So what they do is they, um, they look through national poison data system data, and they kind of uh, take a peek at what kind of stuff we've seen over the, the last few years. And so there's actually three different codes in um, the NPBS data. And so one code is for in, insect repellents with heat, one code is for insect repellents without heat, and then there's another code for unknown types of insect repellents. So all insect repellents, when it comes down to a code, to one of these three categories. Um, so uh, picaridin actually is a subset of the insect repellents without heat. So what they did, um, they really just pulled the data for everything. Um, for these three codes, and they compared them. And so they identified um, 68,429 insect repellent exposures, um, and this was from January 2000 uh, to May 2015, so a pretty good um, chunk of time there. And then unknown insect repellents were excluded in this in the search. And so what they found um, were that products containing picaridin actually accounted for only two percent. So about 282 cases of, of the category insect repellents without heat. And the cases were predominantly in kids under six years old, about 77% of cases. Um, and that they're usually due to general unintentional reasons. And that's, this was across all age groups. And so more than 90% of all exposures were actually managed on site. So they weren't managed at a healthcare facility. In almost all cases, about 96% were reported to have no more than minimal effects or not followed um, because we didn't expect effects. Um, less than 5% of cases actually had ocular irritation or pain or oral irritation. Um, one death was identified out of all of the insects um, out of these three categories. And um, that was in an adult male with unintentional exposure to an insect repellent containing these. And they don't go into any more detail about that. Um, so with intentional exposure, 63% were actually managed on site. Um, and 43% of those were treated, evaluated, and released without any um, other care. 7% were admitted to a critical care unit, and 5% were actually um, in a non-critical care unit. Um, and then almost 20% were discharged straight from the emergency room to a psychiatric facility. So, in the patients, um, that had, there were 158 suspected suicide exposures. And so the most common reported effects in these patients, so these patients would have deliberately had um, a larger amount than little kids taking a sip. What they saw in these patients were vomiting, nausea, tachycardia, throat irritation, and drowsiness and lethargy. Um, so then they look at the picaridin subset. And they note that 92% were actually managed on site, not in a healthcare facility. 7% were sent to the hospital. And only one patient was actually admitted to a healthcare facility out of the, um, 
out of the 282 cases that were reported in the last 16 years. And they note that um, there were actually no cases of major effect or death and only one case of moderate effect, um, which they don't, that we don't know what that moderate effect was, but um, and then all the rest of them actually had either no effect, minor effect, or they weren't followed because we didn't expect we didn't expect effects. And their primary symptoms reported were ocular irritation, vomiting, um, red eye, conjunctivitis, and oral irritation. And all of these were less than five percent. Um, so, and the main treatment in these this subset um, with the keratin uh, was um, uh, dilution, irrigation, and washing. So overall, they, they come to the conclusion that uh, the keratin-containing and non-decontaining insect repellents all appear to have a low acute toxicity, uh, really primarily resulting in only mild to moderate symptoms after exposure. Um, they do report that the keratin is reported to be as effective as DEET um, and that it's gaining popularity, but you know, we do need to look a little more at its, its safety. Uh, but they do say, based on what they found in these reported cases, um, that it suggests that the majority of cases of unintentional picaridin poisoning can actually continue to be managed at home without a referral to a healthcare facility, and that irrigation for ocular mucous membrane symptoms is the way to go. And that is it. Yeah, so, you know, another look back at the NPDS system. I'm kind of curious why they went all the way back to January of 2000 when, and they specifically were looking at picaridin as their title suggests, although they looked at everything. So picaridin didn't become available in this country to 2005, so it's five years where there wasn't, technically shouldn't have been any picaridin cases unless they brought it from somewhere else. Um, but they did that extra work, and, and it's with most of the NPDS stuff, when they don't follow cases to their conclusion, you never really know. What happens? But I think most of us do believe that picaridin is safer. We certainly have no reports in the system of causing seizures like DEET does. So I think overall for general conclusions is if you're going to an area where there's Zika, which includes most of South America and the Caribbean and many parts of the Pacific, really DEET's the best thing. If you're bringing along children, I think you have to use everything at your disposal, including not going out at peak times today when these mosquitoes bite. The problem with the Zika virus is these mosquitoes bite all day long. And so you're, if you're out watching the Olympics for eight, 10 hours a day, I mean, you're stuck having to use this, but be aware if your star child starts getting lethargic and irritable, you can't tell if that's heat illness or they're starting to have deep toxicity. If you're just staying home in the United States, for right now, picaridin seems to be a smidge safer and maybe easier to put on. It won't melt your eyeglasses, and it may not cause your children to have seizures, and it's still available. As far as Centronella candles and Skin So Soft, and um, except for the Victoria's Secret bombshell, I, it's hard to recommend any of those things. <laughs> So there's your advice for the summer for your outings in all your bug-prone areas. And until next time, as uh, Zane Horowitz and the crew at the Poison Center, uh, we'll see you then.